Book the Third, Part Nine of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Third, Part Nine. At the back of the room, the applause had been loud at the moment of the kiss, real or counterfeit. The cause was partly owing to an exceptional circumstance which had occurred in that quarter early in the play. The people had all seated themselves, and the first act had begun, when the tapestry that screened the door was lifted gently, and a figure appeared in the opening. The general attention was at this moment absorbed by the newly disclosed stage, and scarcely a soul noticed the stranger. Had any one of the audience turned his head, there would have been sufficient in the countenance to detain his gaze, notwithstanding the counter-attraction forward. He was obviously a man who had come from afar. There was not a square inch about him that had anything to do with modern English life. His visage, which was of the colour of light porphyry, had little of its original surface left. It was a face which had been the plaything of strange fires or pestilences, that had moulded to whatever shape they chose his originally supple skin, and left it pitted, puckered, and seamed like a dried watercourse. But though dark catastrophes or the treacherous airs of remote climates had done their worst upon his exterior, they seemed to have affected him but little within, to judge from a certain robustness which showed itself in its manner of standing. The face-marks had a meaning, for anyone who could read them, beyond the mere suggestion of their origin. They signified that this man had either been the victim of some terrible necessity as regarded the occupation to which he had devoted himself, or that he was a man of dogged obstinacy, from sheer sang-froid holding his ground amid malign forces when others would have fled affrighted away. As nobody noticed him, he dropped the door-hangings after a while, walked silently along the matted alley, and sat down in one of the back chairs. His manner of entry was enough to show that the strength of character which he seemed to possess had a phlegm for its base, and not ardour. One might have said that perhaps the shocks he had passed through had taken all his original warmth out of him. His beaver hat, which he had retained on his head till this moment, he now placed under the seat, where he sat absolutely motionless till the end of the first act, as if he were indulging in a monologue which did not quite reach his lips. When Paula entered at the beginning of the second act, he showed as much excitement as it was expressed by a slight movement of the eyes. When she spoke, he turned to his next neighbour, and asked him, in cold level words, which had once been English, which would seem to have lost the accent of nationality. Is that the young woman who is the possessor of this castle, Power by name? His neighbour happened to be the landlord at Sleeping Green, and he informed the stranger that she was what he supposed. And who is that gentleman whose line of business seems to be to make love to Power? He's Captain de Stancy, Sir William de Stancy's son, who used to own this property. Baronet or knight? Baronet. Very old established family about here. The stranger nodded, and the play went on. No further word been spoken till the fourth act was reached, when the stranger again said, without taking his narrow black eyes from the stage, There's something in that love-making between Stacy and Pa that's not all sham. Well, said the landlord, I have heard different stories about that, and wouldn't be the man to say what I couldn't swear to. The story is that Captain de Stancy, who is as poor as a galley crow, is in full cry after her, and that his only chance lies in his being heir to a title and the old name. But she's not shown a genuine anchor for anybody yet. If she finds the money and this Stancy finds the name and blood, 
Could be a very neat match between them, eh? That's the argument. Nothing more was said again for a long time, but the stranger's eyes showed more interest in the passes between Paula and Stancy than they had shown before. At length, the crisis came, as described in the last chapter, to Stancy saluting her with that semblance of a kiss which gave such umbrage to Somerset. The stranger's thin lips lengthened a couple of inches with satisfaction. He put his hand into his pocket, drew out two half-crowns, which he handed to the landlord, saying, Just applaud that, will you, and get your comrades to do the same? The landlord, though a little surprised, took the money and began to clap his hands as desired. The example was contagious and spread all over the room. For the audience, gentle and simple, though they might not have followed the blank verse in all its bearings, could at least appreciate a kiss. It was the unusual acclamation raised by this means which had led Somerset to turn his head. When the play had ended, the stranger was the first to rise, and going downstairs at the head of the crowd, he passed out of doors and was lost to view. Some questions were asked by the landlord as to the stranger's individuality, but few had seen him, fewer had noticed him, singular as he was, and none knew his name. While these things had been going on in the quarter allotted to the commonality, Somerset, in front, had waited the fall of the curtain with those sick and sorry feelings which should be combated by the aid of philosophy and a good conscience, but which are really only subdued by time and the abrading rush of affairs. He was, however, stoical enough, when it was all over, to accept Mrs Goodman's invitation to accompany her to the drawing-room, fully expecting to find there a large company, including Captain de Stancy. But none of the acting ladies and gentlemen had emerged from their dressing-rooms as yet. Feeling that he did not care to meet any of them that night, he bade farewell to Mrs Goodman after a few minutes of conversation, and left her. While he was passing along the corridor, at the side of the gallery which had been used as the theatre, Paula crossed it from the latter apartment towards an opposite door. She was still in the dress of the princess, and the diamond and pearl necklace still hung over her bosom, as placed there by Captain de Stancy. Her eye caught Somerset's, and she stopped. Probably there was something in his face which told his mind, for she invited him, by a smile, into the room she was entering. "'I congratulate you on your performance,' he said mechanically when she pushed to the door. "'Do you really think it was well done?' She drew near him with a sociable air. "'It was startlingly done, apart from Romeo and Juliet, pre-eminently so.' "'Do you think I knew he was going to introduce it, or do you think I didn't know?' she said, with that gentle sauciness which showed itself in the loved one's manner when she has had a triumphant evening without the lover's assistance. I think you may have known. No, she averred, decisively shaking her head. It took me as much by surprise as it probably did you. But why should I have told? Without answering that question, Somerset went on. Then what he did at the end of his gag was, of course, a surprise also. He didn't really do what he seemed to do, he serenely answered. Well, I have no right to make observations. Your actions are not subject to my surveillance. You float above my plane, said the young man with some bitterness. But to speak plainly, surely he kissed you? No, she said. He only kissed the air in front of me ever so far off. Was it six inches off? No, not six inches. Nor three. 
it was quite one, she said with an ingenuous air. I don't call that very far. A mist is as good as a mile, says the time-honoured proverb, and it is not for us modern mortals to question its truth. How can you be so off-hand? broke out Somerset. I love you wildly and desperately, Paula, and you know it well. I've never denied knowing it, she said softly. Then why do you, with such knowledge, adopt an air of levity at such a moment as this? You keep me at arm's length, and won't say whether you care for me one bit or no. I've owned all to you. It never once have you owned anything to me. I have owned much. And you do me wrong, if you consider that I show levity. But even if I had not owned everything, and you all, it is not altogether such a grievous thing. You mean to say that it is not grievous, even if a man does love a woman, and suffers all the pain of feeling he loves in vain? Well, I say it is quite the reverse, and I have grounds for knowing. I don't fume so, George Somerset, but hear me. My not owning all may not have the dreadful meaning you think, and therefore it may not be really such a grievous thing. There are genuine reasons for women's conduct in these matters, as well as for men's, though it is sometimes supposed to be regulated entirely by caprice. And if I do not give way to every feeling, I mean demonstration, it is because I don't want to. There now, you know what that implies. And be content. Very well, said Somerset, with repressed sadness. I will not expect you to say more. But you do like me a little, Paula. Now, she said, shaking her head with symptoms of tenderness and looking into his eyes, what have you just promised? Perhaps I like you a little more than a little, which is much too much. Yes, Shakespeare says so, and he is always right. You still doubt me? Ah, I see you do. Because somebody has stood nearer to you tonight than I. A foggy like him, half as old again as either of us. How can you mind him? What shall I do to show you that I do not for a moment let him come between me and you? It is not for me to suggest what you should do that what you should permit me to do is obvious enough. She dropped her voice. You mean, permit you to do really, and in earnest, what he only seemed to do in the play? Somerset signified by a look that such had been his thought. Paula was silent. No, she murmured at last, that cannot be. He did not, nor must you. It was said nonetheless decidedly for being spoken low. You quite resent such a suggestion you have a right to. I beg your pardon. Not for speaking of it, but for thinking it. I don't resent it at all, and I am not offended one bit. But I am not the less of opinion that it is possible to be premature in some things. And to do this just now would be premature. I know what you would say, that you would not have asked it, but for that unfortunate improvisation of it in the play. But that I was not responsible for and therefore owe no reparation to you now. Listen. Paula, Paula, where in the world are you? was heard resounding along the corridor in the voice of her aunt. Our friends are all ready to leave, and you will surely bid them good night. I must be gone. I won't ring for you to be shown out. Come this way. But how will you get on in repeating the play tomorrow evening, if that interpolation is against your wish? he asked, looking her hard in the face. I'll think it over during the night. Come tomorrow morning to help me settle. But, she added with coy yet genial independence, listen to me. 
not a word more about a, what you asked for, mind. I don't want to go so far, and I will not. Not just yet, anyhow. I mean, perhaps never. You must promise that, or I cannot see you again alone. It should be as you request. Very well, and not a word of this to a soul. My aunt suspects. But she is a good aunt and will say nothing. Now that is clearly understood, I shall be glad to consult with you tomorrow, early. I will come to you in the studio or Pleasance as soon as I am disengaged. She took him to a little chamfered doorway in the corner, which opened into a descending turret, and Somerset went down. When he had unfastened the door at the bottom and stepped into the lower corridor, she asked, Are you down? And on receiving an affirmative reply, she closed the top door. End of Book the Third, Part Nine